Hello, St. Luke's. I am Zane McGee, and I'm looking forward to the new class that we're starting off. We're going to be looking at the Gospel of Matthew, uh, but more particularly as we go forward in the, in the coming weeks, we're going to be focusing on the Sermon on the Mount and looking at how Matthew's depiction of the gospel story um, compares to those that you've already studied and what is particular to Matthew and what is particular to the Sermon on the Mount as well. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to the discussion uh, that we'll have in the future. Unfortunately, this week, uh, we're doing only a pre-recorded message. So the interaction and questions and, and more personal introductions will have to wait till our future meeting. But I'll give you just the briefest of introductions to myself, um, enough to get us started today. And then in the future, when we're actually live and, and having some discussions, um, I'll be happy to share more about my life, my experiences, and how we got here. And I'm sure much of that will come out as well as we look at the text together. So the short version is that uh, I have graduated from Emory University with a PhD in New Testament. And before working in Atlanta, before coming to Emory, I was a missionary and a church planter in Brazil for six years. Um, and before that, then I grew up in, a, in Texas and Oklahoma as well. So I've kind of lived um, in, in a lot of diverse uh, places, very different from each other. And um, so I'm sure that as we have conversations that will help inform some connections that we have with each other, and then also give us plenty of opportunities to talk about how our own context influences how we approach scripture and also help us to see how Matthew himself has a, a distinct purpose and aim for his gospel influenced as well by his context and his church's context as well. So as we get into this exploration of Matthew, rather than kind of start and approach Matthew as its own gospel with its own story that we're, we're just going to treat as an independent gospel account of Jesus, it's really helpful for us to kind of begin with the knowledge that you all already have. And so you have all been studying Mark, you're familiar with kind of the Mark and narrative, the Mark and purposes, and how Mark creates his gospel. So I think it's most effective for us to build from that experience and talk about, um, in a sense, why is there a need for another gospel? So we, many of us as Christians, have grown up in the church where we are just familiar with this concept that the New Testament begins with four distinct gospel accounts. We might occasionally pause to ask why that is, but I don't know that many of us give a lot of thought to the question of why, if, if one gospel has already been written and exists, why is there a need to write another? Why is there a need to write a third? And then why is there a need to write a fourth? There's obviously these, these authors have distinct purposes for doing that, and they have reasons for doing that. As we get a little bit further into this lecture, um, we'll see from the evidence that Matthew is familiar with Mark. So it's not that Matthew has set out to write an, an account and was unaware that one already existed. Matthew already actually knows that Mark exists, and he actually uses Mark um, in this writing. So it's it's helpful for us to keep this question in mind. We're not going to answer it right now, but we're going to, that's kind of going to, going to be our framing question as we move forward in this lecture is as an introduction is why would Matthew, the author of this, this gospel, feel a need to write a different account if he knows already that the, the gospel of Mark exists? So that's going to be our, our framing question as we move forward. One of the first things that you're going to ask that many people ask whenever we talk about the arrangement of how Matthew and Mark and Luke as well, but that um, I know you all will spend a significant amount of time on that in the future. So you'll get further into the relationship of Luke with Mark and Matthew. Uh, but particularly with the question of Mark and Matthew, one of the immediate questions that's, that's going to come up is, as you have already learned, most modern scholarship believes that Mark was written first and that Mark is the earliest Christian gospel that we have. So this raises the question that comes up then. If 
Mark is the first gospel that we have. Why is Matthew the first gospel in the New Testament, right? If, you, if you've learned your, your books of the Bible, even the first couple of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? So why does Matthew kind of serve as the head of the gospel traditions if, in fact, Mark was written first? So here's the this um, slide that you're seeing here is kind of broken into two um, sections, the who is Matthew, and I'm going to present kind of the traditional view, and by traditional I mean for the great majority of church history, um, this view was considered to be true, it was considered to be to make sense, and it, it provided the evidence for assuming that actually most um, uh, most ancient interpreters, even up into uh, a very modern time in the scope of 2000 years, uh, most ancient interpreters thought that Matthew was written first. Um, and that Mark was actually kind of a, uh, we might say, a reader's digest of Matthew, that Mark was writing for a Gentile audience. So Mark took Matthew's kind of Jewish and Gentile writing and Mark stripped out all the Jewish stuff and made it a condensed version that he could pass on to a Gentile audience. Um, the, the, we'll discuss why that doesn't fit as well uh, for modern scholars as much, but begin with the idea that most of church history has thought that Matthew was the beginning uh, the very first and earliest gospels written. Here's particular reasons why that actually makes sense if you're thinking about it in a logical way. The first is that Matthew's gospel has a very distinct Jewish flavor to it. And so because of that, it became very easy for the church to assume that Matthew was writing to Jews. And if he was writing to Jews, then he was probably in Palestine. And if he was in Palestine, then that puts him geographically closer and probably temporally closer to Jesus and his ministry than Mark. So the assumption was that if Mark is writing to Gentile audiences, he has to be writing later after the gospel has spread to Jewish um, provinces. I mean, to Gentile provinces and to the greater um, Roman kingdom and, or Roman empire. But if Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, and particularly in Palestine, as it was thought, then, then that means that Matthew is probably the earliest. Matthew has kind of the original group of Jesus followers in mind as he writes this gospel. So the fact that it was, it was thought to be written specifically, um, maybe uh, exclusively to a Jewish audience by some um, interpreters in the past, uh, really gave it a, a kind of push for it being kind of the earliest reflection of Jesus's ministry on earth. There was also in this in this vein the idea that um, because of some of the language, the Greek language that Matthew uses, it kind of reflects uh, Hebrew and Aramaic patterns of speech at certain points. So it was also assumed that in truth Matthew was written in Hebrew or Aramaic, and then uh, and then from there it was translated into Greek, and that's how we got the Greek, and then eventually our English version of the Gospel of Matthew. And that, that theory is pretty, uh, pretty highly contested now in modern scholarship, simply for the fact that we don't have, uh, first, that we don't have any Hebrew um, examples of the Gospel of Matthew surviving that we can see, but we do have plenty of early Greek um, uh, testaments to that. And then also the fact that Matthew, when he quotes the Old Testament, he, his quotations of the Old Testament generally match with the quotations of the Greek um, Old Testament called the Septuagint. And so it appears that Matthew is actually using the Greek Septuagint when he's quoting the Old Testament. So that makes it much less likely that, that it was written in Aramaic to begin with. So that's the first is that we have a Jewish, uh, the Jewish flavor of Matthew seems seemed to suggest to early interpreters that he was writing for kind of the earliest followers of Jesus. 
Um, you could infer that he is presenting an eyewitness account because of the way that he describes various events that goes on here and the way that he presents the ministry of Jesus. So if he's a presenting an eyewitness account, then that means that he had to have been somebody who was following directly with Jesus and was very intimately aware, um, not only of the pattern of Jesus's ministry and the trajectory of it, but also like the very, we're going to see what teaching plays an important part in Matthew. So it, we could assume that this was an eyewitness because he presents verbatim, uh, we assume, or the, the author, early interpreters could assume that he's actually writing down quotes from Jesus's, um, Jesus's lectures, sermons that he's giving. So if that's the case, early interpreters wanted to assume that he was an eyewitness as well. And kind of pairing those things together, it was assumed that he was also an apostle. Uh, obviously, um, he was aligned, this writer of this gospel was aligned with the Apostle Matthew and his calling. Um, and then because of all of those things together, as we've already um, suggested, it was assumed that all of this together means that Matthew was the earliest gospel. Um, kind of counterpoints to each of those that modern scholarship has, has begun to raise. And it's not something that only modern scholars picked up on. Earlier uh, interpreters picked up on some of these incongruencies as well. But the general gist is that, um, where Matthew was thought to be a Jewish audience, uh, written exclusively or primarily to a Jewish audience, the Gospel of Matthew is actually the only gospel that uses the term church to refer to the collection, the collection and gathering of Jesus's followers. So it's difficult to argue that it's the earliest and the exclusively Jewish um, gospel version when it's actually the church, the, the phrase church, ecclesia, is used in this gospel, which would suggest that the author um, is familiar with a term, a Greek term that's used to describe um, Christ followers. And so that makes it a little difficult to assume it's only a Jewish audience that's my, in mind. The second to the, the idea that it, he, it's an eyewitness account is that we see that there's actually a heavy reliance on sources throughout the Gospel of Matthew. Um, as we've already suggested, Matthew uses the Gospel of Mark at various points and quotes it, um, uses it verbatim, and where it's not verbatim, uses it as kind of the structuring device and follows, um, in general, the, the form and shape of the Gospel of Mark. We're going to talk a little bit about how um, Matthew puts his own flavor on that narrative, but then also inserts uh, teaching material into the, that narrative as well. So these, the gospel is written um, and reliant, the gospel is reliant on Mark, and then we won't get into this too far, but um, most modern scholarship believes that the gospel is also reliant on a source called Q, um, and that's just a um, not imaginary, but it's a hypothesized source that we don't have. Uh, but essentially what it what Q represents is the material that appears in Matthew and the uh, material that appears in Luke. So Matthew and Luke um, appear to use the same material. They do use the same material. And because of that, that connection between Matthew and Luke, it's assumed that they had some type of source Q, which is generally considered to be a collection of sayings. So Q probably wasn't a narrative like Mark was. It was probably just a collection of these are some of the things that Jesus said or Jesus taught during his ministry. And so Matthew and Luke both pull from that common source, um, and they um, they integrate that into their uh, work as well. So uh, was the author of Matthew, was the author of this gospel that, that it's attributed to Matthew actually an eyewitness to the events? Um, it seems unlikely because, the, because of the reliance on Mark and the reliance on uh, this, this Q source. Um, 
paired with that is the claim of apostleship in that the attribution of this author as being an apostle um, or an immediate disciple of Jesus is something that later people, later interpreters have put onto the gospel. The gospel itself never claims to be written by an apostle, and the gospel itself never claims to be written by Matthew. The gospel itself never claims to be written by an eyewitness. So those three things that, that have kind of been cast upon this gospel by church tradition are actually not things that the gospel itself claims. Um, and then the, the, the early, the question of whether this is the earliest gospel, as we've already suggested multiple times, is that it, Matthew uses Mark. Um, there's a whole string of logical arguments for why it makes sense that Matthew uses Mark and not that Mark uses Matthew, which would put Mark after Matthew. Um, but the general gist of that kind of logical flow is that it would make more sense for a later author to take a simpler work and to begin to expand it and refine it and kind of perfect it and present their own twist on it. And it makes more sense to do that than it does for a later author to take a well-written, well-structured uh, well narrative and begin to kind of pull chunks out of it and to mess up that structure or to, to remove significant portions of it. So that's the general idea of, of why um, you would assume that Matthew is copying Mark rather than Mark kind of dumbing down the Gospel of Matthew. So that presents us with the authorship and the date. Um, as far as a, a concrete date, if, if you wanted one, if we assume that Mark was written sometime, some, sometime around 70 AD, um, you could push that a couple of years forward or a couple of years backwards, but we'll just say 70 AD and that Matthew is using Mark as a source, then we have to give time for the Gospel of Matthew to be written, uh, Gospel of Mark to be written, for it to be copied, for it to be distributed among Christian um, gatherings, um, and then for Matthew to be able to, for it to become an established source in the Matthean community, and then for that to be used to create another gospel. So generally, uh, scholars would give that uh, probably a 10, 15, 20 year period. Um, some would give it a longer period, um, 30 years or so. But in general, you're looking at a range from about 80 AD to 100 AD. And just averaging those together, we would say uh, around 90 AD, I think, is, is sufficient for, for our study. So Matthew is probably written around 85 to 95 AD um, and probably somewhere near Antioch or something along those lines is, is what general scholarship um, concludes. Antioch gives us a well-known center of early Christian development where both Gentiles and Jews were involved, and that gives kind of a fitting audience for Matthew um, which we can't say is exclusively Jewish, as as some interpreters may have, because there are uh, there's a distinct um, uh, distinction difference between the church and the synagogue. So we can't say it's exclusively Jewish, uh, but we also can't say it's exclusively Gentile either, because as we'll see, Mark uh, Matthew relies very heavily on the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, the Septuagint, the Greek version of it as well, and so that presents us with the idea that there are Greeks, um, that there are Gentiles among this group as well. So Antioch is, is a good, if we wanted to put it in a specific location, Antioch or somewhere in that area um, would be a good place for us to kind of think about how this fits together. So let's look at, um, we're going to simplify this a lot for this um, introductory lecture. And then as we go through each of the coming weeks and look at specific parts of the, the gospel of the Sermon on the Mount, we can look at how some of these features that we identify here begin to come out in, in fuller form. So we can kind of think of the relationship between Mark and Matthew is that Mark, 
Matthew accepts Mark's general narrative of the ministry of Jesus. And then what he does is he puts his own twist on it. One of those twists that he puts on it um, is that the author of Matthew adds in Old Testament references. So the author of Matthew begins to complement or to further support the claims of Mark by showing that actually these aren't just things that happened during Jesus's ministry. These are actually things that the Old Testament, the prophets, the law, the writings of the Old Testament actually pointed towards these things, and Jesus is now the fulfillment of these things that were pointed towards. Um, so in many ways, Matthew kind of does the research and the footnoting of Mark's gospel to say, Mark's presented this version of how things happened. I'm going to take that version and I'm going to add to it and I'm going to show the reader how this is actually supported and strengthen the case um, that, that Mark presents. One way, if, if we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount, one way that this comes up is in, in Matthew 5, 17 and 18, the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And so from the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, we get this really strong sense from Matthew that the law and the prophets are important, that they're not something to be cast aside. They're not something to be forgotten about, uh, but instead that for the ministry of Jesus and therefore for the life of the church, um, the Old Testament is actually very important and that Jesus lives as a fulfillment of that, both in his teaching and in his life, and then in the teaching that he passes on to the church for the life of the church. Um, so that's just one example. Um, there, there are a lot more. There are others in the gospel that are much more explicit of the prophecy that was presented and how Jesus fulfilled it. But sticking to our, our interest in the Sermon on the Mount, this gives us a very good kind of setup because it's easy for us to, as we'll see in the next point, um, it's very easy for us to think that um, Jesus offers these corrections and rebukes of the law because the law has to be thrown out. But actually, Jesus says, I have not come to throw it out. I've come to fulfill it. And so he offers an interpretation that kind of uh, maybe we could say redeems, but thickens and enhances the meaning of what these commands mean. Um, so that's uh, a way that the Old Testament references find um, their, their meaning in Matthew and especially in the Sermon on the Mount. Another significant way that Mark and Matthew differ is, again, that Matthew takes Mark's narrative and accepts the general flow of it, but then says that we're going to insert specific sermons, specific lessons that Jesus teaches. The scholarly tradition calls these discourses, and so we're going to insert these into this narrative as we go along. So Mark clearly demonstrates to us that Jesus is a teacher and tells us that Jesus taught to a crowd and that the crowd was moved or he, Jesus asks probing questions or Jesus make, might make a really insightful comment that, the, uh, that, that causes people to reflect or think or change their ways. Uh, so where Mark tells us that Jesus is a teacher, Matthew shows us that Jesus is a teacher, not only shows us that he is a teacher, but shows us what he teaches. So these discourses, there's generally considered to be five major ones. Um, in the Gospel of Matthew, and um, these discourses are the content of what it is that Jesus taught during these times, and so that um, begins to play into the idea of how Jesus is a teacher, which is our next, um, our next point um, in the differences between them, is that in Matthew, um, Jesus very clearly becomes a teacher. Um, Jesus very clearly becomes a teacher of the people who are following him, but we have to keep in mind that these these this gospel we asked why what's the purpose of writing another gospel 
Um, one of those purposes is that the gospel that Matthew is writing is specific to his community, and Matthew means for that gospel to teach his own community. So not only is Jesus a teacher in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus is the teacher of the church who is reading this gospel as well. Um, and so that's we can think of this as like the Sermon on the Mount when we're there, that Jesus is not only teaching this crowd in front of him, but that as Matthew constructs this, Jesus wants his readers to, in a way, be seated among that group and for his readers to be hearing the teachings of Jesus towards them. Not to say Jesus said this to those who were gathered at the Sermon on the Mount, but that Jesus says this to us as the readers of this gospel who are participating in it. Um, and then kind of in a secondary way to that, we can think that Matthew himself actually becomes a teacher um, to the reader. And there's good hints. We talked about the identity of who Matthew is and what we can and can't know about the actual author of this letter. There's, there's good hints and good suggestions in the construction uh, of this letter in the language and the, the level of um, formality and accuracy that, that's used in the language, the skill that's used in constructing the narratives and making it smoother than Mark's gospel, um, that the author of this text probably was himself as well, some type of scribe um, and some type of, of um, uh, some type of scribe, some type of teacher has a participation in the tradition of both reading scripture in writing and in offering interpretations um, on this. And that's part of the reason why, as we've gone through this, I've continually referred to the gospel, the author of this text as a he. Um, that's not any type of sexist uh, assumption that the author has to be a he uh, for any reason, uh, but it's based on the historical evidence that most likely in this period, if we're looking at someone who's trained in Jewish scriptures, trained as a Jewish scribe and participating in uh, various traditions like this, then that person was probably a male in the ancient world. And so uh, we're fairly, fairly safe to assume that the author of Matthew is probably a, a male. Um, so that's the reference for referring to, to the author here as a he. Uh, so we see this in Matthew 5, again, looking at the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it is said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to the law. So Matthew begins by quoting the law, um, or Jesus begins by quoting the law, kind of reaffirming that it's there. Um, but I tell you, and so this marks that we've accepted that the law has some importance, but Jesus is offering some type of different interpretation of it here, but I tell you, and then anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. So then the application or the reinterpretation of it. And so you kind of get this movement, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, but at other points in the gospel as well, that Jesus acknowledges the importance of the law, reinterprets it, and then applies it to the life of the church or the life of his disciples that eventually becomes the life of the church as well. So we have Jesus as, as the teacher as the uh, final one. And then, as I mentioned, um, I jumped ahead of myself on the slides there. Uh, but as I mentioned, Matthew as a teacher um, is probably, um, his background is probably in some form of scribal work or teaching interpretation of, of scripture as well. And that bleeds over um, into seeing how Matthew is applying the teachings of Jesus to the life of the church, as well as reaching further back than the teachings of Jesus to the Hebrew Bible and Old Testament itself. Um, to apply those. So those are a few of the key ways that I want us to think about the differences that exist between Mark and Matthew. And again, instead of covering all of the basics of what a gospel is and all of those, we're going to take our knowledge of Mark and build on top of that to say this is how Mark, Matthew, in a lot of ways, follows Mark. And so we don't need to repeat everything we know about Mark. 
Um, but in significant ways, Matthew differs from Mark, and those are those four points that we just looked at. So let's talk very briefly. Um, I know we're, we're getting close to the amount of time that we want to spend on this introductory lecture. So very briefly on the Sermon on the Mount itself. Um, we're not going to get into any details because that's what our coming weeks are about. Um, but this is just kind of to set up ideas as we think about what the Sermon on the Mount is doing. We've mentioned that there are five discourses that are inserted into the Gospel of Matthew to demonstrate that Jesus is a teacher. And so we see that the Sermon on the Mount is actually the first of these. Um, and so as the first of these, we should, we should immediately think or suspect that it's going to be an important discourse. Um, it's going to be an important sermon for us to listen to. And it, it turns out, as you read through the rest of the gospel, that that, that is true. Um, the Sermon on the Mount is probably the, well, the most well-structured, the most well-organized uh, of those, the most, most well-written of those sermons. It's also, uh, it occupies three chapters, so it's quite lengthy. Um, but it also becomes programmatic for the gospel, the, this gospel that Matthew is writing. So it becomes programmatic for kind of how this gospel unfolds and that we'll see the themes and the ideas that are presented in the Sermon on the Mount actually begin to reappear later um, in the gospel account as well. So we should kind of see it as, in a sense, a foreshadowing of some of the things that Jesus teaches here and how they unfold in related ways um, elsewhere in his ministry and in his teachings. Um, it's also programmatic, as I said, not just for the structure of the gospel, but then also for the structure of Jesus's ministry as well. How the teachings here are lived out into the various contexts that Jesus's ministry unfolds in. Um, and then the most striking part of the Sermon on the Mount that we have to pay attention to, to think about Jesus as the teacher of the ancient church, or no, sorry, let's say the teacher of the disciples. So we'll say the people who are actually sitting at the Sermon on the Mount versus the Jesus as the teacher of the church that will come later and we'll read this. An important part of all of that is that in Matthew's presentation of the teachings of Jesus, learning always leads to action. So Matthew is not interested just in establishing that Jesus is a teacher. He's not interested in just establishing that Jesus has really wise sayings or presents really in, in intellectual and important content. Matthew is always interested in presenting the idea that what Jesus teaches becomes action or leads to action, that the person who has truly understood and absorbed the teachings of Jesus is then able to convert those into action as they live out their life and as the church lives out the church's life. Um, in, in uh, the world that it's in. So let's close then um, with just a couple questions. These are key questions for us to keep in mind. So we're not going to answer any of these today, but these are four questions that as we go through each of the coming weeks, we can kind of frame in our mind to think about how Matthew differs from Mark and then how the Sermon on the Mount kind of helps illustrate those differences to us and what it teaches us about Jesus that we maybe didn't get out of the Gospel of Mark or we get it in a different flavor this way. So the first of those questions is to ask, how does Jesus teach? Now, it's going to be fairly easy for us to identify that immediately Jesus is teaching because we're going to be primarily based in the Sermon on the Mount the entire time. So that, that entire discourse is a teaching episode. Um, so it's going to be easy for us to see how that happens. Um, but it's important that there's movements within the Sermon on the Mount. And so we can think about how is Jesus teaching in this particular section of the Sermon on the Mount? Why does he change styles or change tactics or, or change emphases at different points? Uh, so we'll think about how does Jesus teach? We'll, we'll think about what does the church learn 
Um, so what is it that Matthew is writing, not just to say that Jesus said this to a crowd, but to say that Jesus speaks this into the future to the church itself. So what is it that the church learns from this? Um, I want us to pay attention to how does this relate to the Old Testament. And so that's, again, at various points, that's very easy to do, especially where Jesus says, you have heard it said this, an Old Testament quotation or allusion, and this is what I say now. So those are very um, clear references to the Old Testament. But we can also look at other um, kind of allusions or examples or quotations or prophecies and those type of things as they come up as well. So how does this relate to the Old Testament? And then the last one, continue, continuing with the theme of the, in, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus, the teacher, ultimately calls the learner to action, is I would like for us to kind of close each week by thinking about what is that call to action that comes. Not what is the call to action that we can issue from this passage, but what is the call to action that the passage itself, that Jesus as teacher issues to those who are hearers. Um, as, and as we sit among the crowd at the feet of Jesus, being participants in this lesson that Jesus is teaching through Matthew, then we ask ourselves, what are we learning? And then what is that education, if we use the term loosely, what is that education that we've received now lead us to do in our lives? What does it lead us as individuals to do? But also remember that the, the Matthew being the only gospel to use the title church, it's important for us to actually think about what do we as a community do as well? So what are we as the church doing? How am I as an individual living this out? How am I as an individual within a community living this out within the community and developing the action of the community? And then how are we as a community developing this action within the world that we participate in? So those are our four questions to keep in mind. Um, I realize in some ways this is a lot of information to throw at you as we go through this, so I just want to um, tell you that I'm looking forward to the weeks ahead. We will go at a slower pace in the coming weeks. We'll look at some smaller um, passages of scripture and we'll be able to really de delve into um, what it is that Matthew's saying, how he's developing this idea, and then what specifically we can draw from that for the life of the church. So I'm looking forward to talking with you all, to hearing your questions, hearing your feedback and comments, um, and I hope that, that we have fruitful and beneficial dialogue in the future. So thank you all for listening. Welcome everyone to Your Week with St. Luke's. We're in our Office Hours podcast with all four of us as clergy. Um, we just listened to Dr. Zane McGee, who gave us kind of an overview. He's gonna be our lecturer for the Gospel of Matthew. He gave us an overview of Matthew. And we're gonna jump into having conversation about, in particular, Matthew 5, 1 through 16, these Beatitudes. Um, we just celebrated Easter yesterday, and now we get this vision of the new kingdom um, that Jesus is, is preaching and teaching on on the mountaintop. And so tell us, friends, what do you think? I love, I love this scripture, but I love it from a different interpretation, which we're going to get into. But what does it mean that Jesus started, you know, with, saw a bunch of crowds and said, let's start showing people this new kingdom I'm all about? What do you think? So I will say as an introvert, I do love the first line of this chapter. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up a mountain. Hey, <laughs> um, get away. It's like, get okay, away. I'm going to back up a little bit here. Uh, <laughs> that's all I got is just the introvert's perspective. So I think that that is a, a cool reading. <laughs> I, had <always> been <laughs> I, I had always been taught that if Jesus was on a mountain, I mean, he was talking to a large number of people. Yes. And if Jesus was, I, 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 just I, think, I think you're, you're correct. I, I don't know. I, was, I don't know. But if Jesus was by water, it meant that he was speaking intimately. Oh. Yeah. Like he was speaking to disciples typically. I, 
Yeah. Well, and when Jesus is on a mountain, something big's going to happen. Yes. Mm. It's like the word of the Lord is coming to yes. us in a different way than just when Jesus is walking through the village right. and teaching. Yeah. Well, like and we mountain. see that connection from the, the Old Testament of, of yeah. people mountain. go up on mountains to encounter God. Mountain so. and smoke. Mountain and smoke. Those are always the two things yeah. that you're encountering the divine. And it, I just say, like, it's refreshing, like, to, to get through half of, well, half of this year, but all of Mark and then step into a new gospel and get a, in another voice, another perspective of Jesus. And that this one is, it be, like you said, begins with this powerful teaching that, um, that really, for, for me, since last summer when we laid this out, I've been going back to Matthew 5 mm -hmm. in my personal struggles and my leadership struggles. And um, I've been going back to Matthew 5. And so it, it's a very shaping text for me um, that, that has been helpful and challenging. Mm. So I'm glad to be, have another, another perspective. We're, we're through Mark, but then also to, to have Matthew who shows us a Jesus who is going to, to express the kingdom of God in a way that uh, it is divine. It is mm -hmm. on a mountain, but it's to everyone. Mm -hmm. These, these, these blessed, these happy people. Um, for me, I'm, I'm, ex I'm excited about the next season. Yeah. Mm. Well, and it's interesting because, you know, reading a lot and studying about this, um, it's the kind of the preamble right. to the Constitution. Mm. It's sort of what Jesus is doing. He's like setting up the preamble of, you know, we the people, you know, and this is who the people are. Mm -hmm. this, this is who we're talking about. And, and so what do the Beatitudes mean to you? Because I actually think we read them all differently. Mm -hmm. um, happy uh, is an interesting word that I love that is used in this translation, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. happy and blessed, because we, I think, as Christians, throw away the word happy. We go, well, it's not happiness, it's joy, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. is actually not true. Well, um, happy and joy are the same. And John Wesley would say happiness actually comes before joy. Mm. Um, so, so I love the fact that this translation uses happy as the 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 word yeah. um, but what is it yeah because it says happy and then in chapter in verse 12 it finally says be full of joy and be glad mm -hmm. um, so it's like you can't get to the joy until no. you've received this happiness and blessing but what do you all think it means I think there's such a it's such an interesting piece because most of us probably grew up hearing blessed are right mm -hmm. right that that's the language that we and, and you know the word blessed can just get so it, it's so complicated right now hashtag blessed and I'm blessed for this yes. right. and oh. you know and and what does that yeah. mean because if so I say hard. I'm blessed for this does that mean that someone else wasn't blessed oh it was such a blessing that you know someone's life was saved well what about the per and and they, it's just it it's it's messy to use that term at this point because of how it gets used so I, I love that that the the translation that we most often use the the common English version um, invites us to have to look at this text more deeply to mm -hmm. to ask that question about the word happy because we have interesting baggage as people with happy but I think it's different than blessed right. so yeah. it pushes us in that way so I think that is is one thing that that I'll be working with with this text is is really digging into the the happy piece and and what what really does that word regardless of what word we use what is Jesus really inviting us to think about the the who are mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm, in the rest mm -hmm, of them. Mm -hmm. I love that. I think the way that I've read the Beatitudes has always kind of been split between uh, this idea of what Jesus uh, hoped to or, or came to bring in the announcement of the coming of the kingdom of God mm -hmm. and also encouragement to folks who are simply going through these things as a part of the discipleship process, right? Mm -hmm. So 
you of course have people who are grieving and Jesus is saying as part of the kingdom of God, this new reign that is coming to the earth, those people will be made glad. You know what I mean? You have people uh, who have pure hearts and they will see God, uh, but also as you are going through your discipleship journey, you will be hungry and you will uh, uh, be, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. No, no, no. It's, it's mercurii is that word for, mm. for, right. for happy or for blessed that we always translate that's happy. Mm. Um, but putting it in mercurii allows us to um, be more, I think, faithful to the word, which helps to be more faithful to what, what, what Jesus is saying here. And also allows us to look back at Psalms 1. Right. Mm where it says, you know, happy is the one who, uh, who doesn't follow wicked advice, right? There's these two mm. forms of wisdom that the first Psalm is drawing us towards and the one who walks in the way of God. And so it seems like Jesus, when we use uh, language that's a little more accurate, right? It's Greek, not, not Aramaic. It, for me, it draws me back to where was this also used? Because I think maybe, maybe Jesus is doing some things intentionally, mm -hmm. Absolutely. right? Mm -hmm. um, and expanding what the psalmists who are bringing worship to the people, who are bringing the people back into relationship with God. Mm. Um, that's what the Psalms were initially doing. That's why they were written that way. Um, that he's, he's drawing us back to, and then expanding on what Psalms 1 does. Mm. Um, so for me, that's just so rich. And that goes into what you were saying about mm. how Jesus then labels, who are these blessed? Who are these mm. happy people who are walking in the way uh, of God? There's also an element, and I always go with literary, right, mm. uh, is if you look at the structure of the sentences, mm. you've got a present reality and then you've got a future promise yes. mm -hmm. in each mm -hmm. one. Yep. And so it again talks about, if we're talking about this as a framework for the kingdom of God, there is both present reality, there's, there's already and not yet right. Right. In, mm. in the Beatitudes. Mm -hmm. You've got the already people grieving will be made glad. Already mm. people who are humble will inherit the earth. Already who are hungry and thir thirsty for righteousness will be fed. Um, so you keep keep getting that of, of, of here's here's what we can work on now and here's what we know is coming. Um, and so I think like Jeremy you were saying it, it gives us the the, um, the the acknowledgement if I'm grieving I've got a promise mm -hmm. or if I'm not grieving I need to recognize I will mm -hmm. and 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 to, to play with all of those different sort of tenses and timelines and and the already and not yet of the kingdom. Well and it's interesting following Easter you know, this is that dying to live, that, you know, this is the living that will happen. This is the resurrection mm -hmm. that will come, whether it's on this side of earth on, or on another, th there is that intrinsic hope. This is the resurrection that will come to you in these moments of your life. Um, so it's interesting because so often, if we go back to what Jeremy preached on liberation, that Jesus is always on the side of the oppressed, mm -hmm. in many ways, these feel like groups of people in some ways who are oppressed mm -hmm. or who mm -hmm. are have been you know marginalized or that Jesus is picking out these different groups of people and saying hey let's let's look at these people because yes there's hope but John Wesley had a really different take on this um, that I have found in the last few years actually we preached on this scripture um, when we did ragtime mm. we preached on the Sermon on the Mount when we did ragtime which was really powerful um, and I got to really dig into this. But before we get to what Wesley was saying, I think we need to set up with some Wesleyan understanding of grace. Mm -hmm. So we moved through justifying grace and Good Friday, um, that, that Christ died and Christ was resurrected and that we see that we are justified in that grace and it's just as if I never, as we teach the confirmands, you know, we live into that grace and we're forgiven. But then Wes 
mostly, um, which I think is somewhat distinct in, from other traditions, mm -hmm. moves us from the cross into resurrection and, and says, all right, now live into resurrection every day through sanctifying grace. You're not done yet. Right. You're not yeah. done yet. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> God, God explain sanctifying right. grace for all of us who are listening. Explain the fourth days as the uh, Emmaus Road mm -hmm. talks about. What does that mean? Well, it's, it's that, well, you're about to say other than you've already said it, not be mansplaining. You already said it. I mean, it's like, it's it, that God's grace is continually working and that we need to make ourselves more and more available to that work, um, that we're moving, <laughs> Wesleyan language is we're moving on to perfection. Mm -hmm. We're not perfect. We're moving on to perfecting love. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, if you graph out, which is just a horrible thing, uh, <laughs> salvation, it's not this <laughs> elevator, boom. You're, you're, you are completely and fully saved. Yes, you are. But the journey of life has ups and downs and opportunities for us to mature and grow and learn and find other dimensions of God's grace and understand more fully how God has, uh, has saved me. So sanctifying grace for me is continually opening my perspective on, on God's love and God's presence and what God's wanting to do in my life. And that's, it's ongoing. Uh, I think about Ben Adams. Um, who, when I first got here, I, I wanted to try a sermon idea out, and he was, he was around, and he, and he said, so what? What's the so what? And it called me back to, to seminary, right? What's the so what of the text? And, uh, and like you all were just saying, that, that sanctifying grace is, okay, I, I, I am resurrected, so now what? Okay. What are you going to do? Who are you going to be? And especially in Eastertide, we're in between uh, the resurrected Lord and the ascended Lord and the mm -hmm. presence of the Holy Spirit. There's this time and this space to live in that resurrection more fully uh, and to, to dig into what it really means for us. I think the biggest piece that happens in the sanctification process and, and, and moving into the, the space of sanctifying grace with God is after justification, we are now making a daily choice to partner with God. Prior to justification, mm -hmm. God chose to partner with us through prevenient grace, whether we liked it or not. Right. <laughs> and God was continually reaching out for us. And in sanctification, it's now our turn to reach. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah. so in, in Easter tide, we've now seen the whole story. Like we have now seen the, the, the whole picture of, yeah. of what Jesus came to, to do. And so now, now there's a responsibility on us and, and sanctifying grace empowers us to do that. So it's still God's work in us, mm -hmm. but we're making that daily choice to then partner with God rather than God partnering with us. If that, it, it, both mm -hmm. are still happening, but there's a, yeah. there's a flip-flopping almost of, of where, where we, we see our role in there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love that. I, um, if someone working on ordination paperwork, I'll throw this out here. And come, can, on. Mm -hmm. can, come on now. I think about it uh, kind of like, I, and I don't know how much this uh, this metaphor will flow or this example will flow, but it's kind of like um, justifying grace is like applying to a school and being accepted, kind of, <laughs> right? And being accepted for better or for worse on your current ability, right? Mm -hmm. And then through the, uh, it's, it's sanctifying grace is the courses you take to shape you into uh, the final product of what that school wants you to be, whether it's you go to school to be a chef or you go to school to do whatever. Uh, only thing about sanctifying grace is you don't you don't graduate really right. unless until perfection. Right. right. But <laughs> Christian yeah. perfection, we'll like like, striving even for. Even right? if you even if you right. reach Christian perfection, you still haven't graduated because right. it's probably only going to last a second. So you just <laughs> continue to be shaped. Yeah. Well, and even when you graduate, mm -hmm. you're not done learning. Right. Right. Because right. right. you know when I left seminary, I went, <laughs> I know nothing. <laughs> 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 Amen. Right. Church work. Yeah. 
we've all told the joke about like how when you they tell you that you're a master of all divine when you get your MDiv, right? And, and that's ridiculous. <laughs> but, that's why I'm glad I'm only a master of theological studies. But yeah, I mean, so uh, sanctification is just the shaping process um, that helps us look more like the Jesus who we owe our salvation to. Right. Well, and it was interesting to go back to something Jad said, you know, the the elevator, you know, we're already saved. We're already forgiven. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, the whole saved conversation is another day. But we know we're forgiven, so just keep working. Mm -hmm. Like, keep doing the hard work, which we're going to really get into Mm -hmm. in this whole Sermon on the Mount. Um, So the reason we brought up that conversation is because John Wesley, instead of looking at the Beatitudes as uh, different groups of people, um, in, in some ways looked at this as the process of sanctification that a disciple, an individual goes through. Mm-hmm. Um, it, he said in one of his sermons, it says, some have supposed that Jesus designed in these to point out several stages of the Christian course, the steps which a Christian successfully takes in his journey, journey to the pro- promised land. Others, that all the particulars here set down belong at all times to every Christian. And why may we not allow both one and the other. So it's like different stages of life that we move through, um, which is really powerful to me because it is this movement, this growth pattern of I'm grieving, I'm grieving because things are not the right, the way they should be. um, And I will be made glad. But when I'm willing to grieve, then I'm humbled by the fact that I will be made glad in my grief because of the incredible abundance of God, Mm. the incredible gift that God gives me to heal me. And that humbles me, which allows me to inherit this whole kind of world around me because I'm not using my power against the world, but I'm humble in the world, which then makes me hunger and thirst for things to be right in the world. And when I hunger and thirst for things to be right in the world, God shows me how mercy helps. And when when I offer mercy, I have this pure heart to realize oh my gosh, we're all in the same boat and people need me. And when I have that pure heart, it brings me a sense of peace that I'll be called God's children. And when I get that sense of peace and live into that, that's when people start harassing me because I live differently than this world does. Mm-hmm. And it's a, this beautiful, like, again, it's this dying to live where everything's mm-hmm. a progression. I was about to say, this seems, this seems back to our, our circle and our, yeah. our cycle. And what does it mean then for us in this Eastertide, the great 50 days where Jesus is with us mm-hmm. before the church is born, mm-hmm. to kind of move through that process all over again as the kingdom? What is that? What, what work is that for us? Well, I think it's really powerful that Jesus, that we have this 50 days because it could be really easy to go, resurrection, did it, done. Right. Yeah, move and, on. And why, why does Jesus need to still be here? He taught everything he needed to teach. He did the death thing. He did the resurrection thing. Mm-hmm. And he stays. Right. And there is still time that he spends with, with his disciples almost in his own modeling for us the life of discipleship. No, even after resurrection, there is more. Mm-hmm. So I think there's there's something there. Mm-hmm. Um, What's well, that already not yet we've talked mm-hmm. about? It's it, yes, Christ is resurrected, and you are already forgiven, and you are being forgiven. You are being resurrected. I mean, it, it's that idea that we have when it, we say awakened disciples. It's 
they're here, the kingdom, or revealing the kingdom of God is probably the better term. Right. The kingdom of God is here. Christ is resurrected. It's, it's our work to be part of the sanctifying grace, to reveal it to other people. Um, and so I, I think that's a lot of what I think, you, Jen, you point out is, is what Wesley's getting at. We just use a different language, a way to think about it, mm -hmm. but it's the same idea. Mm. Um, but I can't, re I can't see the kingdom of God until I'm awakened. I, I can't see mm. all the nuances of the kingdom of God among us, which I've been thinking a lot about. This goes into a totally different thing, but I've been thinking a lot about Revelation where it does promise that God will come and be with us, that God will make mm -hmm. God's place mm -hmm. among God's people. And yeah. so they... Is the kingdom that we're going to, or is it the kingdom that's here? And how did, it doesn't get revealed until I awaken to something new in my life. Mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. how ma which makes me go, wait a minute, I thought at some point I would be retired from this work. Disciples. <laughs> right, right. Like, I thought I'd be done. Right. Why? Mm. Yeah. Was I the only one that thought that maybe I'd get to a point where it'd be like, okay, I'm good? It seems like mm. a nice thought. Well, well, and I think it sounds I think, great. Can we do that? But I think that's part of the the struggle with Christianity in America is that for so many it's been preached, yeah, one and done, right? It's mm -hmm. just it's there, and and then just just go on Sunday and get your 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 ticket punched. ticket punched, and it's all good. And like, no, this is hard, transformative work, and this is the sanctifying grace that is it's not done. It's all ongoing. It's unfolding. It's revealing. Like and for me, one of, the, one of the biggest controversial theological concepts that we don't talk a lot about as Methodists is Christian perfection, because that sounds terrifying. Yeah. Right? Because, because we, we, we do talk about how you don't have to be perfect, and it's okay, and, and your sins are forgiven, and all of right. that. But this actually is a fundamental concept that we can be made perfect. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. That we can actually Li potentially live a sinless life. We can actually potentially become like Jesus, not in the divine sense, but in the human sense. Mm -hmm. And that just seems a little far-fetched to most of us, right? right. But I, for me, continuing to believe in that concept and that possibility is what keeps me going. Because mm -hmm. if, if, if I had this theological concept of depravity that I'm useless and I'm worthless and mm -hmm. there's nothing I can do. It's all Jesus and, mm -hmm. you know, I have no part in it. Then why would I do any of this work? Why mm -hmm. would I seek to make the world a better place? Mm -hmm. Why does any of that matter? And to me, Christian perfection is, is, is a, is a, whether it is true or not, whether it's a yeah. theological concept that, that is, is attainable or not. Even John Wesley said he doesn't believe he ever attained Christian perfection. Mm -hmm. But he believed he, he could. could. Correct. I, was right. I, was like, I don't think John Wesley he, ever achieved perfection. No, and he didn't either. think he did either. No, and he didn't think he did either. I don't But he believed that we could. Yeah, of course. And I, for me, I have to believe that we can. We do treat Christian perfection as like our, like Methodist family secret like we don't talk about it because we realize when we do talk about it in other like realms of faith we do sound wild yes. just because of the term no we sound crazy we believe we can get to perfection right, right, right. But it's just the, the terminology but not a deep theological understanding of what we mean when we say it yes right? uh yeah no i agree with that 100 but also jen you said something about not being able to see the kingdom until we've been awakened to something else uh like just the idea that there can be this already not yet thing happening inside of us, right? This whole time, this sanctification piece, this already of justification and this not yet, a, yet of sanctification. Um, how can we believe or see that out in the world or believe that it can happen if we don't believe it can happen within, mm. our, within ourselves? Right. You know what I mean? 
-hmm. It's so interesting because, Melissa, I... I actually love to talk about Christian perfection. <laughs> I do too. Uh, yes. <laughs> Probably I feel called out now by Jared <laughs> on that. But, but, it wasn't, uh, but I was always taught it wasn't about becoming sinless, mm -hmm. that we will still sin, but it was being perfected to learn to love, love. another mm -hmm. person the way God loves. And the only way, if I look at the Beatitudes, that's what's happening. It's almost mm -hmm. like, like Wesley looked at the Beatitudes and in, in seeing this as this movement of sanctification, we get to the part, happy are you when you insult and harass, when people assault and harass you and speak all kinds of bad and false things about you all because of me. Be full of joy and glad because you're great reward of heaven. That's it. Mm -hmm. Like I can love the people who insult me and harass me and speak all kinds of bad things and false things about me because I believe in God. And I can do that because I love them the way God loves mm -hmm. them. It's almost like this is the picture, verses 11 and 12, of what Christian perfection should look like yeah. and can look like. Mm -hmm. And, But that's also probably the hardest verse for me. Mm. And I go, oh, oh, I'm not there yet. Right. right. <laughs> and I think that's... Let me go back to the beginning and start grieving right. and being poor in spirit. Because it's only when I am poor in spirit and humble myself that I will realize I need Jesus. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and that's the question we of discipleship is, do I believe that? Mm -hmm. Do I believe this is possible? Do I believe in this, this outcome, for lack of a better term? And if I don't, then I've got to go back and do that work. Yeah. Um, my, most of you know my husband works in, in um, poverty alleviation and, and social services and, and caring for the homeless. And um, their, their tagline is ending, ending homelessness, restoring hope. They, I think, said restoring hope before we did, but we're partners with them, so we that's good. We could argue with them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but ending homelessness and restoring hope, and, and, and one of the big things that they have to talk about with all of their staff and all of their volunteers is, you have to believe we can't end homelessness. Because mm -hmm. some people don't think it's possible. They, they would say, you know, it, it's always gonna be something that we, I mean, we even have, you know, our pieces of scripture that would that people use to, to say, you know, the poor are always gonna be with us. Um, but but he, he said, you know, I can't have someone working with us who doesn't actually believe in the outcome we're working towards. Because if you don't believe we can do it, then I can't believe you're fully committed to the process mm -hmm. and the work mm -hmm. that we're actually doing. Yeah. And I, I see that same kind of concept here is we have to have that picture of the kingdom. We have to believe the kingdom is possible. Mm -hmm. We have to believe Christian perfection is possible. Yeah. We have to yeah. believe in all of that because otherwise are we fully committed to everything that comes before it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's interesting because it actually, I, I, I started with the wrong thing. It's, it's <laughs> first happy are people who are hopeless. Right. But who have given up, it goes back to what we died to. So I, when I get hopeless, I realize that my ego and the earthly authority and the facades of this world, none of them bring me hope. And I'm hopeless before God because the only one who can bring me hope is the right. kingdom of heaven. It's that fully surrendered mm -hmm. at my wit's nothing end. I nothing I can do. Like you say, no cross, mm -hmm. I can go on. No right? cross mm -hmm. is left for me. Mm -hmm. It's only Jesus on the cross is where my, I realize finally it's my only hope. Mm -hmm. I've, I've hit the bottom. The only way is up and the only, and the only person that's looking, that I'm looking at is the face of Jesus. And that's where it all starts. Yeah. That's where justification starts, mm -hmm. right? It's such yes. an interesting paradox yes. because in this moment and in what we're talking about and what we're talking about Eastertide, it is full 
surrender to Jesus and full committing to action, right. which feel contradictory and like if I have to surrender and I have to give it all up, then that feels passive almost. It feels like I'm stepping back, but somehow this version of surrender is actually stepping in. Well, because so when we get to this, when you move to the next thing, mm -hmm. it is about doing. Right, exactly. It is about doing it to prove it. Like exactly. Salt and light yeah. and yeah. judging and don't judging. And, yep. Yeah. So before we get there, so when I, when I think about God's grace, the Wesleyan understanding of grace, um, and I teach it, I talk about God's grace is like a river. You're, before you were ever born, it was always there. You, you can hear it, you can feel it, right? You can hear the rushing of it, and that's, and, and that's, that's prevenient grace. And you, choosing to step into it is, is justifying grace. You're changed, you're wet. Um, but sanctifying grace is learning how to pick up your feet, that, which is that vulnerability, mm, right. that, and that, that God, um, God's grace will move me through, right? Move me on. And that, that it, there, there's white waters down the way. It's going to be rough. It's going to be hard. I'm going to want to put down my feet mm -hmm. and be in more control. But it's that I have to, have to believe this. Mm -hmm. uh, it makes me think of a few weeks ago when uh, Amy Fritz Ocock talked about replacement thoughts. Right. She talked about uh, how um, positive or neutral to replace the negative, but you have to believe. Right, mm -hmm. and so that that makes me think of that same thing. I have to believe that yep. that if I pick up my feet, if I'm vulnerable to this, and that's a work. That's mm -hmm. work. That's being salt. That's being light. Mm -hmm. That that is that is not passive in any way, shape, mm -hmm. or form. It's a conscious decision. Um, that that for me wraps right. all this conversation together. That that's just stepping into sanctifying grace and allowing it to do that work in me and me be part of that work in others. Mm -hmm. So that in others part is a great transition. So as we end our office hours podcast for uh, this week, we want you to come back on Sunday because we're, we're going to spend less time on the Beatitudes. We're going to spend more time in that salt and light for others. Um, our, our children and youth are, are going to be helping us share worship and lead worship. We're going to be meeting all together in worship. Um, at 9.30 right. um, in the sanctuary. We're all going to come together because how the question that Jesus is going to pose to us is how are we going to reveal the kingdom on behalf of our children and youth? Mm -hmm. And how are we going to be salt and light? And we have some exciting visions to share. We're going to be moving to a new space and you're going to see some exciting dreams. But it's also going to invite you to figure out how we as adults are called to reveal the kingdom of God for the youngest among us. So we hope that you'll be here Sunday. We'll see you at worship.